The Lessons Learned for Vets podcast is proud to be brought to you by AFMA, the American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association. Established in 1879, they are the longest standing nonprofit association empowering military families with affordable financial solutions for generations. Offering life insurance, wealth management, mortgages, survivor assistance, and other benefits, AFMA is here to support you through every stage of life. AFMA is dedicated to helping service members be financially and logistically ready for life after the military. To support you in this process, AFMA would like to offer you their free downloadable transition timeline, a step-by-step guide to help you create a comprehensive military transition plan. Let AFMA help you get ready for your next step by visiting afma.com backslash LL4V. That's A-A-F-M-A-A.com slash LL, the number four, V or clicking the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Lessons Learned for Vets podcast, your military transition debrief from the veteran mentors who've gone before you. My name is Lori Norris, and I've been teaching veterans how to successfully navigate their military transition since 2005. I'm a civilian who speaks the language of all branches of the U.S. military, and I'm on a mission to educate veterans in the job search marketing process. This podcast shares the military transition hot washes and after action reports of your fellow veterans to smooth your own path out of the military. Where do I want to go? Anywhere besides D.C., California. Program manager in Massachusetts. Okay, that's still a lot of people. What company do I want to work for? And, and you can see it kind of going down from there. And I think what was most beneficial for me is when I did that, putting in, I want to be a program manager at this location, Air Force, Army, Marine, Navy, Coast Guard, vet. And that narrows down your search, but I will tell you, once you start emailing those people, and it's a little bit uncomfortable for me at first, um, more often than not, they came back saying, I would absolutely love to talk to you about this position, what I do. Um, people set up Zoom calls with me, phone calls, emails back and forth, and it really helps you because you can determine, is that what's right for me? Is this a company I want to be at? Is this something I'd be interested in doing long-term? On today's episode of the Lessons Learned for Vets podcast, I am welcoming William Wunschel. Bill is currently in the process of retiring out of the United States Air Force as a senior maintenance officer. Since he is in the process of his transition right now, we're going to make this a little bit of a hybrid episode. I'm going to ask him some questions about the lessons he's already learned in his very active military transition And then in addition, he has brought a couple of questions for me. So since this is a little bit of a hybrid episode, I'm going to let him give us an introduction, tell us a little bit about what he's looking for, give us an update on his transition. But I'm excited that you agreed to join me, Bill. Thank you so much for being here. All right. Thanks, Lori. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the quick introduction. Uh, My name is Bill Wunschel. I'm transitioning after a little over 20 years in the military as a senior maintenance officer. I've held leadership positions at both the tactical, strategic, and headquarters Air Force level. And right now I'm kind of looking for a program management type of position anywhere in locations that are DC or California. And where I'm at now, I've, I've had quite a few interviews. I've counted seven, uh, a few offers. I'm in the process of negotiating a couple as well. And it's definitely been an eye-opening 
peace for me, having done this for 20 years in the military where my paycheck comes automatically and I know what I'm going to get. How how long have you been on terminal leave and in the process of, you know, looking at for a job? How long is what what time frame are we at right now? I was lucky enough that I had a bunch of leave banked up based on COVID and, and everything else um, that I started my terminal leave in early February, but I don't officially retire until 1 June. So I took about a month off where I was, you know, a little bit laissez-faire of, you know, just kind of throwing resumes out. Nothing super aggressive or super serious, but what helped me out was the whole networking piece, which again is totally out of my comfort zone. So once I started doing that and starting to focus on tailoring my resume in certain positions, it's really opened up a, a whole new world for me. Okay. We might have to talk a little bit about that. So, well, so, okay. I want to start with my question. So one of the reasons that I reached out to you is you wrote a really cool post on LinkedIn. You talked about how you are, you know, a senior maintenance officer. You're in the middle of your military transition. And you talked about the importance of getting comfortable <laughs> with being uncomfortable, right, in that transition process. So I know that even you coming and joining me here, you're kind of like, eh, I'm not really sure, right? So in addition to coming on this show, what are some of the other things you've had to step out of your comfort zone for? So for me personally, I've always had a small circle of people that I trust who I can confide in. And that's been the same way for 42 years since I've been on this earth. Um, it worked for me. Prior to the military, it worked for me in the military. So why wouldn't it work outside of the military for this transition? Unfortunately, I, I was quite wrong when it came to that. I figured, you know, jobs would come find me based on everything that I brought to any organization. And, and again, I was wrong. So I remember sitting through TAP, you know, the, the check mark of you need to set up a LinkedIn account and add your instructor. Okay. Uh, not being a big social media guy, I have Facebook, I don't do Instagram or any of that. It just kind of sat there. I checked it maybe once a week. Every once in a while, someone would reach out and add me as a connection to include old bosses. Took a few phone calls from them and said, and they gave me some pretty good advice. You really do need to be active on LinkedIn, whether it's, you know, connecting with people, whether it's posting, whether it's commenting on things. Um, again, uh, that's not me. It, it's never been me. I'm not a big social media guy. I don't like, hey, look at me. But once I started doing that, I, I can assure you, like for me personally, it, it opened up a whole nother world. Again, I don't like having a lot of connections, people. I'm, I'm more of a introvert, and which is weird because in my job, I really do need to be an extrovert. But I'd come home some days and be like, I can't people today. Like, I've done it enough. <laughs> but once I started doing that and taking some of my old mentors' um, advice, I found a little cool Google thing that you can go on LinkedIn and you search, hey, I want to be a program manager. I want to be a just a maintenance tech. You name it. You can put that in the search bar. And of course, it populates You know, 50,000 people who are a program manager. All right, that's a little bit much. Where do I want to go? Anywhere besides DC, California, program manager in Massachusetts. Okay. That's still a lot of people. What company do I want to work for? And, and you can see it kind of going down from there. And I think what was most beneficial for me is when I did that, putting in, I want to be a program manager at this location, Air Force, 
Army, Marine, Navy, Coast Guard, vet. And that narrows down your search. But I will tell you, once you start emailing those people, and it's a little bit uncomfortable for me at first, um, more often than not, they came back saying, I would absolutely love to talk to you about this position, what I do. Um, People set up Zoom calls with me, phone calls, emails back and forth. And it really helps you because you can determine is that what's right for me? Is this a company I want to be at? Is this something I'd be interested in doing long-term? So just the networking piece for me was absolutely huge. And not only just doing that, but reaching out to recruiters, which I never even thought to do. Hey, I applied for this position. What are your thoughts? You know, um, even before you apply for a position, here's who I am. Here's my resume. I'm really interested in this position. And here's what I could do to help your company out. And again, that was a little less compared to the responses I got back from veterans. But even still, um, I made a great connection with quite a few of those people and started started back when we talked about getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, I had a great conversation with one of the more influential uh, LinkedIn recruiters. She took the time to speak with me. I never thought she would, but it, it was great. And as we started our conversation and started to finish, she goes, why don't you have your open to work banner on? Again, I don't like to ask for help. It was all new to me. And I told her, I said, um, I feel like it's desperation, which was good because she was extremely blunt back to me saying that is not desperation. That is the stupid way of thinking about it. We talked through it and I agreed. So as soon as I changed my LinkedIn banner to open to work, which I recommend everybody do probably about a month out is when I did it, is I started getting a lot more emails in my inbox. You know, um, for military members, you have the free year of LinkedIn premium. You can see who's viewed your profile. And it was a lot of those companies that I spoke with or submitted a resume to. So changing that and changing my mindset, truthfully, helped out a lot. And I just want to clarify, like you you and I are recording this at the end of March. You really only started getting active with LinkedIn in February. Is that right? Yep. And so in that month, you really ramped it up and had this much impact. Exactly. And, you know, you, I've sat through a lot of the briefings and, you know, uh, the the high level influencers on LinkedIn and they do a lot of free classes, which are which are great. Um, you need to figure out what works for you. And they're telling you, you know, you need to post two times a week. You need to comment on people's posts at least four times a week. You can do what works for you. Yeah. And I think, I mean, if you want to follow them, that's great. That'll help you out. But then you see people on LinkedIn who post every day and they become influencers or they start posting thing and nobody likes it or nobody comments on it whatever works for you. And, you know, I I did post that because as I sat down and was talking with my wife, she wanted me to go do Pilates with her. I'm, you know, a self-proclaimed meathead. I played D1 rugby. I wrestled and played football that, you know, that, that was not for me. But as I started getting comfortable being uncomfortable, uh, I told her I would. And, and it was absolutely fantastic. I, I don't plan on going back anytime soon, but it was worth it. I'm telling you, anybody that wants to find muscles that they didn't know existed should go and try Pilates on a reformer. (laughs) You will be sore in places. You didn't even know there were places to be sore. (laughs) 
I'm glad I wasn't driving home, put it that yeah, way. That, yeah, it's it's no joke. You, you know, it looks like it's such a small movement, but man, that is not a joke at all. I, I really appreciate you talking about how uncomfortable it was for you to put yourself out there. Um, I think there are so many of us that are very introverted. I'm one of them. I talk about it all the time. Um, and yet I send random messages to people and say, hey, I really liked your post. Come on my show, right? I, I, you know, we talk about it a lot. It's like, you just, you never know, like, what's the worst that could happen? And you got to put yourself out there. And I think you're a great example of how just taking this amazing tool that we have in LinkedIn and putting it to work, how quickly it can actually work for you. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I really like that example. You told us you're already interviewing, you're already starting to get job offers. And we're going to talk about those job offers in a minute. But in terms of interviewing, you know, you've already had several different kinds of interviews, different experiences, interviews. Like, what have you learned so far about the interview process? What lessons can you share with us today? I would say the biggest lesson, if you take anything away from this, anybody listening, is you need to prepare, prepare, prepare for your interview. And in full transparency, I will tell you about my first interview. I was still at work. I was actually sitting in tap, and I remember this like it was yesterday because it, it molded me throughout this entire process. It, I looked at the job description. I got this. I've done everything over the past 20 years, thinking in my head of examples like, not a big deal. Too easy. I remember leaving tap early, ran home, got on the cell phone. It was supposed to be Teams, which was my first mistake. If anybody sends you Teams, log on to your computer, never dial in. Yeah. So from there, that probably started the train wreck, if you will. Two other people on the end of the line. Hey, is this Bill? Yeah. What's every question or what's every interview start with? Tell me about yourself. And from there, no preparation. I'd pretty much vomited all over the phone for seven minutes of who I was, what I did, and you know why I would be a great fit. And then they started asking questions. Again, wasn't familiar with the STAR method, didn't need any preparation. Like, I got this. I've given numerous presentations, easy stuff. So 13 minutes later, the call ended and I did what you're supposed to do is send an email thanking them for their time, uh, crickets. So, okay, nothing bad. Sent an email to the recruiter that I talked to the week prior for 45 minutes. She thought I was a good fit. Email to her, crickets. So I think that point in my professional transition career, I realized that I, I really did screw that up. You know, for, for 42 years, on I've prepared for everything that I've done, whether it's a presentation to a general or an SES, whether it's a briefing to a squadron or to a group, for me getting through my bachelor's, my master's, my um, senior professional military education, I I've lived and died by no cards. Prepared, prepared for everything, and I didn't do it, and that really came back to bite me. Um, yep. So lesson learned for me, I, I couldn't just go in there and wing it. It was it was an eye-opening experience, and, and that's helped me. So from now, every interview that I've done, I've done my research. I've prepared no cards. My wife will tell you she's sick of me walking around the house talking about my strengths and weaknesses or you know, even financials for a company as well. Just 
you know, and core values, some of those things that are important to tie in when you do interviews. And for me, I always now take the basic qualifications, the preferred qualifications, the job description, and I make note cards with some of those questions tied into how I meet all of those things that the company's looking for. So preparation is absolutely key. And that was uh, something that unfortunately I, I learned the hard way. Are you telling me your tell me about yourself answer was seven minutes long? Yes. Wow. Okay. I didn't Google anything. Again, uh, it was really early in my transition. So I, I wouldn't say I didn't care, but I, it was a smaller defense contractor. So, I mean, that's that's in my job jar. I figured it would be easy. And then the, the train rep just started and it, it went from there. Uh, another thing I have learned uh, is I've interviewed for seven different companies, uh, one of which is a non-defense company. It was straight up civilian. Um, throughout those entire seven interviews, none, none of them have been the same. It's always been different. The questions have always been different. So I'd like to say it's easy to prepare, but you never know when you're going to get that oddball question that you need to just stop, take a couple seconds, compose yourself, and then just rely back on everything you know and go from there. Yeah, I think that's great advice. So some of those companies, for instance, I only had one interview with a panel of two folks and, and it was done and, and they sent me an offer. Uh, this civilian company made it through the second round and they said, you'll have five more interviews uh, if you make it past this round, which from there I knew that it wasn't for me. So, so it just ranges. I mean, I had one interview that had five folks on the other end and that nothing says a little high stress when you have five people peppering you with questions without taking a break. So you just got to prepare. And, and you're right. I think that's great advice in saying like every interview is different, different format, different questions, different number of people. They do it on Teams or Zoom or in person or on the phone. Like you've got to be ready for anything. And I think, you know, you make a good point in that all the questions are always different. And so instead of preparing for specific questions, I recommend preparing your talking points, have your stories ready, know what your value statement is, and kind of think about like if the last time you gave a speech, you didn't write it out word for word. You prepared your talking points and you practiced filling in those talking points most likely. And I want you to approach interview prep the same way in that you you know exactly what you want to talk about. You've studied the company, you know their financials, you know their core values, and then you can fill in all of that information with your answers, relating it back to each individual company. Like that is great advice. I love that. The one thing I will say is there is one, well, maybe two questions I recommend that you always have an answer scripted for. And I bet you can guess one of them. The one that you went on for seven Tell minutes, Tell me about right? yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, there's no hard and fast rule, but as a general rule of thumb, I don't recommend you talk for more than two minutes at a time. And, you know, no one's sitting there with a timer and I don't want you to even like get hung up on that. But realize that an interview is a conversation. It's a back and forth dialogue and you should not be talking for... 20 minutes. I once asked someone, tell me about yourself. And he literally talked for 20 minutes and covered every question that I was going to ask, ask him in the interview in his tell me about yourself question. So, um, you know, that, that one I recommend you script. 
and it should be a brief overview. And I've covered it before on the show before, but a, a brief overview of the highlights of your value. We don't want to tell them how many dogs you have and how many you know, siblings you have and where you grew up and all of those things, right? But it should be just a quick overview of your background, why you're the right person for the job and why you want to work for their company. That's like the three hot key points you need to cover in that answer. So where do you think you went astray on that, you know, talking for seven minutes? Was it because you hadn't prepared, you kept thinking of things you needed to add in? Absolutely. And I didn't do my research of, you know, like you said, what what are recruiters, what are hiring managers look for when you're you're interviewing? Do you you know? I've probably yeah. mentioned I was born and raised 15 minutes north of Boston. Nobody cares <laughs> about that except for me. Yeah. Um, so I think from there, as I started getting more flustered because I knew that I was just rambling, it, it just you know went downhill. I would also say in an interview, and it's hard if it's a phone call, but. Um, in a video or an in-person interview, really watch the person's body language, right? Like watch how engaged they are with you. You can tell when you lose someone, right? When you, if you're looking at them. Um, and so, you know, you can tell when they've kind of checked out and, and then it's probably time to wrap it up and incorporate some of the other good stuff that you've prepared for the next question, right? So be really cognizant of, the interaction that you're getting. And, you know, if it's a phone interview, you know, say so people give indications that they're listening. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, they make noises, right? Right. <laughs> but, and you need to remember on a phone interview, don't forget to smile, which sounds so silly there. I'm on the phone. They can't hear me, but you can, you can tell when someone is smiling when they're talking. Um, and so that's just one of the, the little tip that I have for you as well. So I think those are, that's good info. So you've already gotten to the point where you've had some offers. Talked about that, right? You, I think you told me earlier, you've already turned down an offer. You have experienced the process of salary negotiation, haven't you? So what have you learned from this process of getting job offers, considering job offers, accepting, declining, negotiating. What can you share with us about that? I would say that for me, the biggest takeaway and anybody in my position, always, always counteroffer. No matter what happens, counteroffer. Um, I've had a few friends who uh, I've talked to, actually one's a retired E9, took a position, didn't counteroffer, but now he's working with folks doing the same job but he's getting paid less. And he even told me, you know, I should have counteroffered. When you do that, I mean, do your research. Like that's the biggest thing of if I want to be a astronaut in Texas, right? We have Google, we have salary.com, we have um, Glassdoor. A lot of those you can find from there and just do your research, put together what that looks like, what's comfortable for you and what you think that the company would be willing to go for and, and put that in a nice professional letter. Um, I went on Google. What does that look like? I've never had to do one before. And let me tell you, there's probably about 75 templates. I grabbed one, made it my own with my own words and sent it back. And I think too, a lot of folks get hung up on just the money and salary piece. When you talk negotiations, there's so much more that a company can offer you with extra PTO as opposed to money. For me, 
I would value time off more than money. Is that something we can work in? When you start talking matching 401k, what does that percentage look like? And then, you know, as, as a retiree, my dental vision and healthcare is a lot different than some other folks. So that's on the table. But everything to me is negotiable. Love it. And you're absolutely right. You know, if you just take the first thing they offer you, you are going to be leaving money on the table. And if they'll let you know if they can't go higher, right? You already yes. experienced that. You had a company say, that's as, that's as much as we can go. And you parted friends. Um, and so that's okay. And I know that it's it's a scary process, right? When you're like, well, this is the only person that's offered me a job so far. I, I need to take it. And I'll tell you, I've, I think I've told the story on this show of my husband doing that very thing. He'd been out of his industry due to economic changes in his industry for two years. And the first time he got offered a job, he just took it without negotiating, even though I was standing in the doorway. Like, I taught you to negotiate, right? But yeah, you will leave money on that table. And so I love that idea of always being prepared. And you're right. There are so many places you can go to do that research. So how have you been evaluating your job offers and making the decision as like, what do you want to move forward with? What are you declining? And, and tell us about that process. So for me, it's, it's a location thing too. And, and what I'm going to be comfortable doing, I know they say that, you know, what is it? 80% of veterans leave their first job after, you know, the first couple of years for, for me, I mean, I'm looking at something that I can see myself doing for a long time. So for the first job offer I got, it was in a location that wasn't DC, California check. Um, the compensation for me was good. It's four days of work every Friday off. That's pretty awesome. So that was definitely one that um, I counteroffered and they came back with some more money. Uh, for instance, one of the defense contractors that I'd interviewed with, it was a panel of two folks, three separate interviews, made it through the round. Uh, the recruiter called me and she says, I got great news. It was in a super great location that I was excited about going to. And it was 25 grand less than the original offer I had. So it wasn't a four day week. It was a hybrid tough call. You know, it's some of those things you need to sit down with your family and see what makes sense. And for me, uh, that I needed a little bit more than that. And they weren't willing to budge with time off. They weren't willing to budge with a salary. They would throw in a $15,000 bonus, but the cost of living in the location we're looking at, it just, it wasn't conducive for what I was looking for. So sent back a counter offer. They didn't they said, okay, thank you, but no thank you. And my job was closed on the portal the next day. I sent a professional letter back to the company saying, I appreciate it, you know, because you don't want to burn that bridge either, right? right. Like, who knows? I, I could be working for them in two years. And if I was that guy, then, then that's tough. That's something that didn't work out. Uh, like I said, I'm still in negotiations with a couple other companies right now. But for me, and, and a trick that I have learned, which I think w was phenomenal, is when people reach out to you saying, hey, what do you want for compensation, salary? Uh, the, the trick is I'm interviewing between this range and this range. And you know, it's not 150,000 to 500,000. Try to figure out what what's comfortable for you and your family and pick a location that you want to be at. 
And if they're willing to meet you, that they'll tell you. But again, everything's negotiable. I think that that is an important thing to have your do your research before you even start interviewing to know your value, know your worth. And looking on places like, um, you know, the, de- the Department of Labor, or the Bureau of Labor Statistics has kind of a state by state breakdown of what different career fields make. Salary.com can give you information by state. Indeed.com slash salary. Glassdoor. All of them can break down salary by location. And you're right. Like, you know, $75,000 in Texas goes a very different direction than $75,000 in New York City, right? Absolutely. So you've got to consider that that cost of living and be proactive in your transition and sit down and, and really write down your priorities. What's most important to you? Is it location? Is it your time off? Is it your work-life balance? Is it the salary that you're making? Is it your benefits? Like what's most important? And that will change throughout your life. So always come back and revisit that um, in that process. So um, I think that that's a great way of looking at offers. And, you know, if you only have that one offer in hand, I always say that, you know, if if you, um, even if you accept a position, you can keep looking right? Because until you start that job, until you start your very first day, it could disappear, right? I was on a doing a a webinar yesterday and a guy in the comments said, well, I had a job offer and they they revoked it. Well, it turns out it was a contractor and they didn't get the contract. So of course they revoked it. They didn't have a job for him anymore. So those types of roles, you just never know. So until you start, you should continue to, to look, continue to pursue opportunities. And I think that's a great point because even when I accepted a job offer, you know, talking to my friend, like I just felt dirty, you know, I felt dirty going to look for other opportunities or, you know, taking interviews, even though I've accepted an oper- the job. But, you know, there's a lot of red tape that still needs to happen before you start that. So at the end of the day, you know, we, we've been loyal to the military for four, 20, 30 years. Yep. Um, now you're kind of a mercenary and I hate to say it like that, but you got to do what's best for you. And I think for me, that was hard at first, but after talking to people who have been through it, it's, it's the nature of the beast. You know, and in the military, you have like first sergeants and career field managers and people that are helping you with your career, right? There's people that are planning out the succession plan for you and only your career, you know, that there are people that are there to help you. And that goes away when you leave the military. You don't have somebody there managing your career path. And so you've got to do that for yourself. And it's not disloyal. It's not underhanded. It's simply you watching out for your own career and the future of, you know, whoever needs to eat with the salary that you're bringing in, right? Um, you, you're going to have to be selfish. It is it is not disloyal. It is just you um, managing your career. So I think that, that's a good point. So, all right, Bill, I understand you brought me some questions. I did. So, you know, there's a lot of pe- people on LinkedIn who have their own opinion on the job search and what you bring to the table based on the description, qualifications, the preferred qualifications. I've seen 100% of basic. I've seen 80%. I've seen 
What's your take on the percentage of the basic qualifications before somebody applies for a job? And if it's less than 100, do you gain any points from having preferred qualifications to maybe put you over that edge to get in the door for an interview? So um, I I go by the 80% rule, right? I mean, that's something that's kind of a given rule of thumb is that if you meet 80% or more of the basic qualifications, then you should apply, right? So I want you to think of a job posting as a wish list. Like, remember when you would sit down and write a, a list, you know, a, a list of like, I wish I could get this for my birthday, or I wish I could get this, you know, whatever it is, you know, so think of it as the the recruiter's wish list. And um, no one's going to get everything. And I will tell you that sometimes there is a strategy where they will ask for the sun, the moon, the stars, and for you to have two different colors of eyes because they want to discourage people from applying, which seems kind of kind of counterintuitive. But when they ask for such huge qualifications, they're like, well, if this is what we're asking for, we know that only the best of the best and the most confident candidates are going to apply. They know that they're very unlikely to get everybody or every qualification checked off. So we're looking at just those basic requirements. Um, as long as you meet 80% of those, you should apply. Now, I want you to think of the preferred or the desired qualifications as bonuses, right? It's like, you know, Christmas morning, you get your presents, but you also get your stocking. I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, so I just want you to think about like the, those are the bonus things. And so your desired and prefer um yeah the desired and the the um, preferred qualifications are extra on top of the requirements and so yes i am of that 80 percent mindset and i didn't pull that number out of the air that's what recruiters have told me and they've also told me that strategy that they're like kind of just making it almost unrealistic because they're they don't want two thousand people to apply they don't want to, you know, I mean, recruiters out there will tell you like, yeah, I read every resume. Um, that's a lot of resumes to go through when you get 2000 applicants. <laughs> and so, um, so that's really how they're doing it. They're using that, you know, we talked about the ATS, right? So the, the applicant tracking software kind of goes through resumes and rates them based on level of qualifications, and then they rank them in their percentage match. And if they have 2,000, they're probably more likely to read the people with the higher percentage, right? So I've seen those back-end ATS reports, and I saw a, a company who showed me the last job that they'd applied, that they'd posted, and you would be amazed at how many people had like zero to 10% match. Wow. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're, you're not doing yourself any favors if you're applying for a job where you don't meet the required qualifications. And I want you to know that you don't have to have a hundred percent. Okay. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. That's, that's good information. Excellent. I probably missed out on a few opportunities early on that I thought I needed to meet all of the basic qualifications. So, and I know this doesn't apply to you necessarily because you know you have your education. But if education is one of those required qualifications, um, and you don't have your education completed, 
I think you should still apply. Now, are there places like being an engineer, being a nurse, you know, having that technical expertise? Yes, there are times you're going to have to have a degree. But if you find that you're not applying for jobs because it says Bachelor of Science degree required, um, I think you can make a case for, you know, 10 plus years of experience in lieu of that bachelor's degree. So don't let a lack of a degree for the most part, um, delay from hire, from applying for jobs. That's great information because, you know, I kind of went through the same thing where I want to be a program manager, but I don't have my PMP. And a lot of my mentors said, based on your what you bring to the fight, if you will, you don't need it. And if that's something you want to get later on, the company would be willing to pay for it. So I, I think that's a great point. You have another question for me? I do. So you heard about my horror story of my first interview <laughs> that I've shared with the entire world right now. What are some of the common pitfalls and issues that you've seen with veterans doing interviews and any advice on how to avoid those so they don't get into the same position I did? Yeah, I will tell you, Like, I just made a couple of notes and my very first one was failure to prepare <laughs> so you you did you know you did that and and i think it's because we know our background we are confident in our abilities we think we can go out and like you said wing it right i'm like ah, i could talk this all day long um and so when we fail to prepare we do end up probably you know going astray a little more than we would if we had really sat down and thought about what we want to say right so you've got to prepare your talking points what are you going to talk about in the interview and i say it all the time like the interview is not about you the interview is about how you can help them and the interview is about how you can show that you're a good addition to the team they already know you're qualified or you wouldn't be there in the interview and so the purpose of the interview is to, to assess, do I think you're going to be a good addition to the team? Do I like your communication style? Do I think you're going to fit with the other people that are already involved in that, in that team? Do I think you bring something that we're missing or need, right? right. And so the more research you can do on the company and what are their needs? What are their problems? Why are they hiring for this role? The more insider information you can get from informational interviews and your research, the more targeted you can make your presentation. And I would say that you're, you know, I always say quality over quantity in the job search. And so I want you to really like put a lot of time into preparing for that interview for that company. And you can also prepare for the interview just for yourself and like, you know, really getting a, a sense of your value, kind of what Brent benefits you bring, what makes you cost effective. But you've got to have examples, right? So part of your preparation is getting your stories ready. You mentioned the star examples earlier. And I, you know, I don't know about you, but if someone were to say like, oh, tell me about a time this happened. And I'm like, I don't know if I have to come up with a story on the spot, I sort of panic, right? Right. Your, your mind goes blank. And so you want to have your stories ready to go. Like if you know the key skills and attributes of that they're looking for in that role, have stories ready to go that go through the situation, the task, the action result 
that can really prove that you've done that before. Instead of you just walking in and going, I'm a great project manager, you go in with stories that show, why are you a great project manager? So think of your interview as proof, right? You're bringing in stories, but it's also about going in and showing that you're a good fit. And so that's my second mistake is that people go in too formal, right? They go in very um, unfriendly, right? They take it so serious because this is a big deal, right? An interview, they, they build it up in their mind and to be kind of scary. And it's really just a conversation and you need to bring your personality to that conversation and you need to bring your friendliness and how you are as a leader, how you are as a teammate, in there so they can get that sense of you. So if you go in and you treat this like a military board and you're very, um, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, sitting straight up, you know, almost saluting them when you walk in the door, this is not a military board. So they're going to see that I'm not sure that you're going to be a good fit for the team. Okay. And then another one I have in there is like, don't go in too arrogant or too desperate, right? So the arrogant person goes in with the attitude of, you can't live without me, <laughs> right? And and they will, trust me, if you go in with that attitude, right? And then the, the person who goes in like too desperate is really just in there talking about themselves and what they need, and they aren't focusing on the employer and their needs. And so again, taking that focus off of yourself, putting it back onto the employer's needs, and how you can add value to them that's going to help you overcome both of those situations. And the last thing I wanted to mention is just you have to walk in there with the ability to translate your experience. Now, as a Air Force maintenance officer, if you're applying for a defense contractor, some of your military language is going to translate. They're probably going to understand a little bit of it. Um, I wonder, did you have a little bit more trouble in the private sector company, the non-defense related? Was that a little bit of a challenge for you? Absolutely, because I made it through the two rounds, both couldn't even spell military. You know, they were engineers. So it was a lot different of, you know, I couldn't, basic acronyms that we all know, I, I had to work around that and not use any acronyms as opposed to some of the military affiliated department of defense organizations where the panel is usually all retired or veterans or at least half right that i can go with so it, it was definitely a night and day difference and it just kind of solidified the fact to me that i'm better off doing something that with department of defense and it's really your your comfort level right some people really enjoy that and some people say i don't want to do anything with an airplane unless it's flying me to hawaii right and so there's there's obviously you know whatever your comfort level is i 100 percent believe you could excel in a private sector leadership role based on my interaction with you but if that's not what you want to do that's that's your choice right um but just know that it's just simply changing some language, right? Let's say you're um, you're interviewing for Lockheed Martin and you say, you know, I uh, put pro programs and processes in place to ensure that all maintenance is completed in accordance with AFI 21101. And then you go to like Amazon and you say that same thing. They're like, what, what does that mean? Like, so instead you just say like, you know, it, it's my job as a leader to create 
programs, processes, and, and training that ensures every member of my team knows the expectations and the standards and follows all of our technical guidelines to meet our customers' needs. Right? It's just a different way of saying the same thing. Yes. So you just have to learn how to speak a different language based on who you're talking to. I think you bring up a great point too, because you know, most of the people in the military are veterans. They're great storytellers, you know, probably a little bit more embellishment than what really happened, but that's what you're doing. You're telling a story. It's just putting it into what makes sense for the company to hear. Yeah. And so if you think about, like I once had uh, an officer tell me like the best thing I ever did to prepare for my military transition is I went out and made friends with civilians. Like we're some alien creatures, right? So, <laughs> but, but he said, I learned how to talk and tell stories and have conversations with them without using my military terms like I did when I was hanging out with my military friends. And so, you know, you might try it. Like you might have somebody like maybe you have a neighbor that you can sit down with and say, let me tell you a little bit about what I do. And you tell me if it makes sense to you, <laughs> right? So just practice that process of talking to someone. So, yeah, I think that that's a, a good a good way of going about it. And it's just, like I said, it's just changing like your filter of how you see things. Right. All right. I think you have one last question for me, which I think is going to be related to what we were just talking about. It is. So, you know, you talk about the filter and, you know, the military has a different culture, whether it's broken down by service, whether it's broken down by your specialty code. You know, one of the things for me is if I go into a realm that is not specifically supporting Department of Defense, military, uh, you name it, what is what does that look like on the outside? Whereas I'm used to a certain culture for 20 years, four years, you know, 35 years. How is that transition going to be going into the civilian sector? Any advice or tips? Yeah, I think that, you know, the first thing I want to say here is that um, all service members, all military service members are taught how to adapt to new cultures and environments. I mean, how often have has the Air Force come to you and said, hey, I know you're a maintenance officer, but we need you to go on a deployment here and do something completely different. Yep. And you figured it out, didn't you? Or you were sent to another country and you had to adapt to their culture and the way that they did things, right? And so in his book, um, The Transition Mission, Herb Thompson talks about the fact that, and we actually recorded an episode kind of about this, is that you need to treat your transition like you're deploying, that you're deploying to the private sector. You know how to adapt. And so why can you adapt to working in a foreign country or with you know, someone from a different background or culture than you are and learn those traditions and learn their culture, but you struggle doing it in the private sector workplace? That's a great question, right? And so um, I think that just some ideas that I have is like, go in to this process knowing that it will be different. It will. It. You're working with people who are, you, you know, even in the defense industry, Yes, there are a lot of veterans in there, but there are people that have never served in the military in there, or maybe they're military spouses. And so it will be different, but different doesn't mean bad, right? It just means different. And so have an open mind, right? So, <laughs> excuse me, know that you're new 
and you're not expected to be an expert in everything. That you're not expected to know exactly how things are in that new culture, that new company. Seek out others that will be willing to serve as a mentor and help you see if they have a veteran resource group in the company. And if they don't, maybe you can even start one for to help the future veterans that come in on board. So just know that there is going to be a learning curve and you need to be ready for that. You need to be ready for the fact that you will not know everything. You are going from knowing everything and being the guy that everybody comes to for the answer to being new. And that's okay, right? Um, and so just be patient with yourself and your coworkers as you're adapting to that that new culture, okay? No, that's great. That is all I have on that one. Um, but I hope that, I know you were not really looking forward to this process. I hope that I made it a little bit more enjoyable and easy than you thought it would be. Absolutely. And um, I want to say thank you for your time. And for the broader audience is you don't have to go alone into this transition. I think that was my big thing of, I don't need anybody's help. I got this. And, and that was farther from the truth. So I'll put it out there. Feel free to reach out through me through LinkedIn if you have any questions or any way I can help. Again, I'm not the guru. I'm not one of the self-proclaimed LinkedIn influencers, but I'll be willing to share my lessons learned or help you out any way I can. You know, I read, once read that to be a mentor, you just need to be 10% ahead of the person that you're mentoring. And so I really appreciate you taking a chance and coming on because I think you have shared some really valuable information as someone who is in it right now, like it's fresh in your mind. You know exactly what you've done right, what you've done. Maybe that you need to do with some improvements and, and it's really been valuable to hear from someone in the midst of it. So I appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Thank you, Laurie. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Lessons Learned for Vets podcast. If you learned just one lesson today that you believe can help you in your military transition, then I've done my job. Please don't keep this podcast a secret. Share it with as many of your active duty service member friends and transitioning veterans who may be struggling with that process as possible. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, and join our YouTube channel so you don't miss any lessons that we share.